Welcome back, everyone, to Halloween Haunts, 365.com, the podcast. I'm Jared. Hi, I'm Terry. That's us. <laughs> that is us. <laughs> Today, we have a treat for you. It's going to be the first part of a two-part episode. We have the true story behind the Abbeville Horror. This is exciting. I, know. I have so many questions. Oh, we'll fire away. So basically, we're going to do our promos first, then we'll get into it. So let's see what Jimmy J's got to say. Get ready for another killer Friday the 13th weekend in Blairstown at the iconic Blairstown Diner. For what? For the inaugural Friday the 13th Mini Con, all hosted by yours truly and the Horror 365 team. I'm telling you, we just have an incredible lineup in store for each and every one of you. Signings and photo ops with various alumni from different Friday movies, screenings, Q&A sessions, a wedding vow renewal segment, I mean a costume competition, hell, even a dinner with the alumni. I mean, who does that? So, make mother proud and get your tickets now. F13minicon.eventbrite.com, that is F13minicon.eventbrite.com. Come on out for the only Friday the 13th of the year and be a part of the history in the making. We'll see you Friday the 13th. Jimmy J with the mic drop. <laughs> we got the Friday the 13th Minicon, May 13th and 14th, Blairstown Diner, Blairstown, New Jersey. Link will be in the description below. Next up, we have some haunts open. I know. Open May 13th and 14th for Friday the 13th and halfway to Halloween. Feel the screams. Field of Screams, fieldofscreams.com. They're open both nights. We will be missing this one and heading to Brighton Asylum, which is next. Open one night only, May 14th. Let's hit it. ready to get into it we are i am it's gonna be a two-parter because this is a very long story this is a mix between true crime horror the unexplained and there's a lot of stories out there so really when we find something that we couldn't confirm i'm gonna note that because you're gonna hear a lot of weird shit through this you ready i'm ready let's play the itch video for him this is WOR New York. Stay tuned for In Conversation. First, this bulletin from the WOR newsroom. Six members of one family have been found shot to death in their night clothes in their expensive home in Amityville, Long Island. The only available information at this moment, according to the Amityville Village Police, is that the, mem- the victims have been identified as members of the DeFeo family, 
They were found by a 23-year-old son, Ronald DeFeo, who is believed to be the only surviving member of the family. Six members of the family found shot to death in their home in Amityville, Long Island. We will have further details on the 11 o'clock news. All right, let's get into it. To begin this story, we have to start at the beginning. This story starts with the DeFeos. Ronald Joseph Big Ronnie DeFeo Sr. was born on November 16, 1930, to parents Rocco and Antoinette DeFeo. When he was younger, Big Ronnie was slender, handsome, and had a powerful gaze reminiscent of Rudolph Valentino. Who the fuck is Rudolph Valentino? <laughs> I was just going to ask you that. I don't know. I should have Googled that. With his suave looks, he was able to attract the attention of Louise Marie Brigante. Born on November 3rd, 1931, to Michael and Angela Brigante, Louise had wanted to pursue a modeling career. She was beautiful enough to hobnob with the best, including legendary singer Mel Torme. And we have her below. So that was Miss DeFeo. Huh. And we can see Senior right here, next to Ronnie DeFeo Jr. So, Big Ronnie's on the right, Butch DeFeo Jr.'s on the left. Alright? Looks like a mob guy. We'll get into that. <laughs> why Why you skip through? Just <laughs> That's the first game All of this break. work, and you're just skipping through and all And that's this. what he looks like! Oh, now hiring, again... <laughs> At HalloweenHaunts365.com. Yes. <laughs> Your dad said I could call you a pompous. A pompous? <laughs> what is this, 1920s? That's what he said, to call you a pompous. Okay. After a brief courtship, Big Ronnie and Louise got married. Since the Brigantes disapproved of Big Ronnie, they cut all ties with the newlyweds until September 26, 1951, when Ronald Joseph DeFeo was born. Growing up, Butch DeFeo had it hard. Because Butch was the firstborn and a boy, his father expected more from him, and Big Ronnie was not afraid to discipline Butch in the cruelest fashions. One minute he would hug his son, the next minute he would throw him across the room. Okay. Louise's brother, Michael Brigante Jr., would later testify at the DeFeo trial about an incident he witnessed when Butch was two years old. He said, we were all sitting down in the basement watching TV, and I don't know, the boy had done something. All of a sudden, he stood up, the father, and just pushed the boy in this way into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something. It's funny how much they cared back then. I know. (laughs) As a child, Butch was extremely overweight and would remain so until his late teenage years when when he began using amphetamines. Yeah, that'll skin you up. Butch's school life suffered because of his weight problem. Bigger kids would often make fun of him, calling him names like The Blob, Bucky Beaver, and Porkchop. Alright, Porkchop. Butch was not, on, was not an only child for long. On July 29, 1956, Louise gave birth to a daughter, Dawn Teresa DeFeo. A few years later, on August 16, 1961... Louise gave birth to Allison Louise DeFeo, and then again on September 4th, 1962, to Mark Gregory DeFeo. Sometime after the birth of Mark, Louise decided to leave her husband for reasons that remain unclear. To get his wife back, Big Ronnie decided to put his writing talents to good use. 
Needing to express his love for his wife, Big Ronnie co-wrote a song called The Real Thing, and in 1963, jazz great Joe Williams recorded the song for his album titled One is a Lonesome Number. Okay. Huh. On October 24th, 1965, Big Ronnie was blessed with a third son, John Matthew DeFeo. By this time, the family had moved from their Brooklyn apartment to the affluent Long Island South Shore community of Amityville. Only for many, it was a mystery how Big Ronnie could afford such a lavish home on a car dealer service manager's salary. The answer was clear. His father-in-law, Michael Brigante Sr. In the early 1970s, Big Ronnie had an idea and decided that he wanted a series of life-size portraits created to immortalize his family. So once more, Big Ronnie's father-in-law, Mr. Brigante Sr., picked up the tab, which estimated to be at least $50,000. That's back then. Yes. So that's like a hundred grand today. So these, that's the only one I have is of her. But um, yeah, I'm not paying 50 grand for that. That looks god-awful. I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, let's keep moving. Keep on checking. Painstakingly detailed, the portraits took over a year to complete. Upon their completion, the life-size portraits hung in large golden frames on the staircase wall in between the first and second floors of the DeFeo home. In the... In the early evenings of November 13, 1974, the patrons of Henry's Bar, a tavern located at the corner of Merrick Road and Ocean Avenue in Amityville, chatted while sipping their beers and cocktails. To them, the start of the evening seemed just like a typical one in Amityville, calm and uneventful. By night's end, however, life in Amityville would never be the same again. (laughs) That is fucking true. At 6.30 p.m., Ronald DeFeo Jr., known by the locals as Butch, opened the door to the bar and yelled, You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. One of the patrons seated at the bar was Robert Bobby Kelsky, an out-of-work brick mason and Butch's best friend. Bobby raced to help help his friend, who had fallen to his knees. Crying hysterically, Butch again pleaded for help. Bobby, you got to help me. Somebody shot my mother and father. Are you sure they're not asleep? Bobby offered. No, I saw them up there. Come on, let's go. Butch got to his feet and called for others at the bar to follow Bobby and him back to the house. Answering Butch's call was John Altieri, Joe Yesowit, Al Saxon, and William Skirmaglia, owner of Henry's Bar. The six men piled into Butch's 1970 Blue Buick Electra 225. Butch climbed in the back while Bobby took the wheel. Although the DeFeo house was only a block away, Bobby drove frantically down the street. One of the men yelled out for him to slow down, but Bobby ignored the comment, arriving at 112 Ocean Avenue in a matter of seconds. The DeFeo resident was a large, rambling, three-story Dutch colonial home built in 1925. And we have a picture of that right here. Beautiful house. It is pretty. It is. It is. You see how close the houses are, though? People don't realize that because in the movies, right? there's no one around. But that house is clearly closer than our neighbor is. Yes. 
Alright. Moving on. Because the property was long and narrow, the dark shingled house sat sideways with the front door facing the elongated driveway. At the end of the DeFeo's 237-foot-long lot sat their boathouse, right at the edge of Amity Creek. But the most distinguishable characteristic of 112 Ocean Avenue was its dramatic front yard. Overlooking the streets were two quarter-moon windows that looked like eyes. A feature common in Dutch colonial homes, on the front lawn stood a lamppost with a sign attached the Red High Hopes, a symbolic title of the family's life in suburbia. Kneeling behind the sign were three figurines of children playing to a larger statue of St. Joseph holding the baby Jesus. Sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> Bobby pulled a car to a quick halt and climbed out. As he climbed up the front porch steps, one of the other men cautioned, Be careful, someone might be in there. I don't care, Bobby yelled as he opened and unlocked the door to the DeFeo home. The house was quiet, except for the barking of Shaggy, the DeFeo sheepdog, who was tied up to the inside of the kitchen's back door. Because the dog was not totally housebroken, the family routinely tied the animal there. The interior of the DeFeo was just as impressive as the exterior. To the right of the marble-covered foyer was the formal dining room with red, velvet-textured wallpaper lining the walls. In the center of the room, over the Dutch-style table seating six, hung a crystal chandelier. A textbook belonging to one of Butch's younger siblings sat, unopened, on the table next to a, a bouquet of wilting roses. Across the foyer was the living room, which contained a baby grand piano. Fronting the large fireplace was a pair of white satin cushioned chairs. Lavish paintings and statues were scattered throughout the room. It was evident that Butch's parents insisted on the most expensive items for their house. With Bobby Kelsky in the lead, the five men hurried up the stairs to the second floor. Bobby, a regular visitor, Visitor to the DeFeo household knew exactly where the master bedroom was located. As they reached the second floor, they were overwhelmed with the stench of death. Bobby stopped at the doorway to the master bedroom and hit the light switch. Before him lay Ronald DeFeo Sr. and his wife Louise DeFeo, 42. A hole in the center of DeFeo Sr.'s bare back was the first indication that the couple was not sleeping. Dried blood had trickled out of the wound, disappearing beneath the obese man's blue boxer shorts. Uh, we're not going to have any of the crime scene photos on here, but one. Okay. Because one kind of tells a story. In contrast, Louis DeFeo's wounds were not clearly ascertainable because her body was buried beneath an orange blanket as if she was protecting herself against the evening chill. Behind the bed was a mirrored wall which eerily reflected the macabre scene. Oh, you see it twice. Seeing that Bobby was ready to pass out, the other men led him downstairs past the life-size portraits of family members that hung on the staircase wall. John Altieri remained on the second floor and checked out the northeast bedroom. Clipper ships, cannons, and eagles dotted the room's wallpaper. America! On the dresser, to the left of the door, lay several statues of figurines that one would expect to find in a devout Catholic home. Strewn across the floor were athletic shoes and toys, signaling that the bedroom belonged to a boy, two boys to be exact. 
On opposite sides of the room lay the bodies of two young boys, face down, like their parents. In the bed on the left lay the body of John DeFeo, nine. Altieri could not pinpoint the bullet hole in John's bag since the Nick's sweatshirt he was wearing was covered in blood. In the other bed lay John's brother, Mark DeFeo, 12. Next to Mark's bed was a pair of crutches and a plain gray wheelchair. The boy had recently suffered a football injury and needed the assistance to get around. At the foot of his bed lay a crumpled up green and yellow bedspread and orange blanket. This time, Altieri could make out the wound, a single bullet hole in the center of the boy's back. Seeing more than what he wanted, Altieri left the room and rejoined the others on the ground floor. There, Joe Yesowit called 911, giving details to an emergency operator. The murders. After a lengthy trial, now you're going to hear a lot of weird stuff in this. If I know that it's confirmed, I'll say that it was confirmed. But they kind of spiral a little out of control and some people are pulling shit out of their hat. Let's just get into it. After a lengthy trial that concluded right before Thanksgiving, Butch DeFeo was found guilty of killing his father, mother, two brothers, and two sisters. On December 4, 1975, Justice Thomas Stark said that the crimes were the most heinous and abhorrent and sentenced Butch to 25 years to life. No other suspect was ever prosecuted for the crime. Officially, Butch DeFeo acted alone in the grisly crime. Unofficially, the evidence pointed to a conspiracy. Now, I could not find any truth but hearsay about this conspiracy theory. So, this is not confirmed from us. Herman Race, a former New York City supervising police detective, was hired by Michael Brigante Sr. to investigate the murders. Brigante had testified at the trial that he did not feel that his grandson acted alone in the commission of the crime. Since Brigante did not feel that his grandson had done all that he was accused of, he wanted Race, a licensed investigator and friend, either to prove or disprove the case against Butch. Race eventually uncovered evidence that showed there were multiple gunmen and at least two guns used during the commission of the crime. During a private court hearing and at trial, Race's findings were corroborated by the prosecutor and the medical examiner who was astonished that one man sat accused of the sole gunman. But where are the bullets? Where's the bullet That's... evidence? We would have heard all this. Right. There is no... And this is the only article I found this in. There's no bullets. Well, there's bullets, but they're all from the same gun. Right. So where where's that at? You'd have to have the exact same gun. There'd have to be two of them. And now or this, more. This brings up Rick Asuna, who I saw in the documentary, and I believe as much as... We'll see. Because he was just throwing out stuff without having backup. During a November 30th, 2000 meeting with Rick Asuna, author of The Night the DeFeos Died, Butch DeFeo confessed that along with his sister Dawn DeFeo, he and one of his friends actually committed the murders out of desperation. The fact was confirmed by a letter written by Butch DeFeo. How does he, he's lied three times. How does he confirm? Devil made me do it. It was me and my sister. It was me. He goes through this six times. Right. So anything confirmed, it's, I don't believe it. 
In his own handwriting, Butch wrote, It was cold-blooded murder, period. No ghosts, no demons, just three people in which I was one. Maybe he wrote that. And he just figured, what the hell? I've been here so long, I'm going to die. Like, Yeah, but it doesn't do anything for him. It wasn't going to get him out early. No, it's not going to get him out early. He just never told the truth. The DeFeo household has been in a frenzied state since the evening of November 12, 1974. Butch's father, according to Butch, routinely abused his family. After that evening's tirade had settled down, Butch, his 18-year-old sister Dawn, and two of Butch's friends proceeded to get high in the basement. And sensed that her father was preventing her from joining her boyfriend in Florida, and worn out from the years of physical abuse, Dawn DeFeo approached her older brother about killing their parents. Bush initially refused. After a culmination of drugs, alcohol, and desperation over the next few hours, Butch finally gave in to Dawn's ghoulish request. Employing his two friends, Butch and Dawn left the safety of the family's basement and headed for their parents' bedroom on the second floor. It was around 1 o'clock a.m. on November 13, 1974. While one friend waited as a lookout, the other, with his Colt Python, followed Butch who armed himself with a 34 caliber Marlin rifle. A votive calendar... Calendar. A votive candle burning on the father's dresser, the second floor bathroom light, and a military-style flashlight that was recovered by police on the brown recliner in the hallway outside of the master bedroom was their only light source. The parents were attacked while they lay in bed. Mr. DeFeo, however, was able to struggle to his feet to attempt a counterattack on the assassins. A second bullet struck him dead before he was able to reach his target. This would have left different blood splatter. It would have left different blood splatter. But we're not seeing any proof of the different blood splatter. Right. They, everybody claims that all the victims were laying on their stomach... Right, and they could have been moved, but where's all the police reports with the different bullets that they weren't shot there, this and that? Because that's in every investigation. The father would have been somewhere else. He wouldn't have been... If he was first to go, he'd be down. They wouldn't be awake. And everything points to him being shot first. How'd he get up? Right, that's what I'm saying. How did he get up? So the mother had to be shot first. Well, every report said the father was shot first. Because then he would have... Because if I got shot, you, of course, would get up. Yeah, I'd hear that. Right. Well, we'll get into that in the next episode, because I have the gunshot and everything with that, but that's in the next episode. Although the original plan called for the younger children to be taken to their grandparents' house in Brooklyn, Dawn, according to Butch, killed them to eliminate the children as witnesses and potential threats. Butch claimed he was not in the house at the time of the children's murders, but given pursuit to one of his friends, who had fled the scene, in order to lure him back to assist with the cleanup. Even while fiendingly in... Even while claiming insanity at trial, Butch DeFeo never admitted to shooting the children. Yeah, because he just... It would have been Dawn that did it. But wait, isn't Dawn dead? Dawn is dead. In her bed. On her back. On her stomach. We'll get to that in a minute. 
One can only imagine the horror on Mark and John's face when their big sister entered their room with a rifle. Dawn callously ordered the boys face down. And you're going to listen to your big sister? Come on. A clue that the DeFeos were awake at the time of the murders rested in the final position of Mark DeFeo's body. Because Mark had suffered a de- debilitating injury from football, he was forced to sleep on his back. Yet, he was shot face down in the bed. But you roll over to your back at night, whether you're in pain or not. And then you, sometimes the pain wakes you up, sometimes it doesn't. Right. If you're a stomach sleeper, that's how you fall asleep. But we'll get into more of that with episode two. The next room Dawn entered the next room Dawn entered was Allison's. Standing at the doorway, Dawn raised the rifle, taking aim as Allison slightly raised her head before looking into the muzzle flash. Death was instantaneous as the bullet impacted Allison's left cheek and exited her right ear. Allison's wounds were meant to disfigure the beautiful Really? See, I'm calling bullshit on all this. Butch, upon his return and enraged at the senseless murder, confronted Dawn DeFeo in her third-floor bedroom. After briefly wrestling for the gun, Butch got the upper hand and slammed Dawn against the bed, knocking her out. As she lie unconscious on her bed... What's that say? Unconscious. Unconscious on her bed, Butch placed the back of the rifle to Dawn's head and fired. The murderous spree had finally ended, but the cleanup had just begun. So what did that say about Dawn? She was unconscious. Unconscious, right. Okay. Let's take a look at this uh, crime scene. How is her arm tucked under a pillow? If she was Mm -hmm. up fighting and died, right, she was able to tuck her arm under the pillow when she died? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Get the fuck out of here. That doesn't make sense. It's under the pillow. She was asleep. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how you fall asleep. Right there, clear as fucking day. Bullshit. So that picture right there clears out that whole article from Osona who's just talking out of his ass. Because we're going to believe a convicted murderer. Did we believe Dahmer? No. Why the fuck are we believing him all of a sudden? Fuck your conspiracy. They were all in bed. Did that not just prove it? Yes. Did he tuck her arm under the... He took the time with gunshot, 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 gunshot. He's going to take the... A meth head is going to take the time to tuck her elbow under? Mm-mm. No. Nope. Sorry. Continue on. All right. Moving on. Today, Butch DeFeo has once again decided to blame the entire crime on his sister. Even though the evidence clearly supports Butch's involvement, nevertheless, evidence also supports the claims that more than one gun and killer were involved in the DeFeo murder. What evidence? I've been scouring this for two weeks. I can't find any other bullets. Because they're saying you have how many people in the house? Oh, we'll get into that. It... Butch has conveniently forgotten writing an admission to which he admitted being part of the conspiracy. He forgot he wrote it. But yet he remembers everything that happened on his drug-full murder spree. Although several attempts were made by Rick Asuna to contact one of the accomplices named by Butch DeFeo, rumor had it he had entered into a witness protection program for something unrelated to Amityville. So we're going to trust this guy. Even if we find him. 
<laughs> the other accomplice named by Butch DeFeo died on January 1st, 2001. Well, you talked about it before. The man refused the author as soon as request for an interview or a chance to clear up any speculation over his involvement. As for Dawn, the postmortem examination discovered that she had unburned powder burns on her nightgown, which let further credence to Butch's claims, but does it? A lot of shit comes out of a gun. It depends on how close it was on her nightgown, not her hands. Right. It would be on her fucking hands. She would have gunpowder on her hands. Yep. Nowhere on here have I read that they found it on her hands but her nightgown. And he was probably close enough. I don't think he was doing it at the door. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. Nobody was. That's why it's such a crazy story. On January 15th, 1975, Butch's lawyer, Butch's then lawyer, Jacob Siegfried motioned the court to be permitted the right to examine, inspect, copy, photograph, or make and take photostatic copies of the original notes of the arresting officers, together with police reports containing statements of the witnesses. Siegfried insists that these items were crucial in his affidavit, saying the defendant was deprived of his right to a preliminary hearing in the district court by the district's attorney's actions and presenting the case directly to the grand jury. Regardless, the court did not believe these items necessary for Butch's defense, and on March 11, 1975, presiding, John, presiding Judge John Jones, that's a tongue twister, you might want to change your name if you're a judge, Judge John Jones, Denied the request. With little choice remaining, Siegfried later filed a notice of defense of mental disease or defect for his client. Since the defense had been denied an equal opportunity to have the same reports, records, and photos that the prosecution had in its possession, there was only one choice left, an insanity plea. Butch did not want his sanity questioned, and he threatened to strangle Siegfried. Hmm. Oh. Okay. With little recourse and after spending more than $40,000 on attorneys, Michael Brigante Sr., you know, grandpa, told his grandson, Sweetheart, your dime is played out. This meant that Butch would have to use a court-appointed attorney. Now, here comes William Weber. <laughs> we'll get into about Mr. William Weber. On, January, on July 7, 1975, William Weber, from the firm of Frederick Mars and Bernard Burton in Patchogue, New York, was assigned by the clerk of the Suffolk County Court to replace Butch to represent Butch in his trial. On July 29, 1975, Judge Ernest Signorelli, who was at the time proceeding over the DeFeo trial, had a conference between Butch prosecuting attorney Gerald Sullivan, and William Weber. The major concern was that there was no objections to Weber's playing an active role in Judge Signorelli's campaign to be elected to the surrogate court. After everyone agreed Weber's role in Judge Signorelli's campaign did not pose a problem, the matter of an insanity defense came up. Weber hoping Judge Signorelli would grant the defense motion to obtain copies of all the police reports and crime scene photographs the prosecution had. On August 1, 1975, Judge Signorelli issued a ruling on Weber's supplemental omnibus motion, granting the defense copies of the reports and photographs in the prosecution's possession. 
Since Weber did not receive the documents until the end of August, he had little time to use them in preparation for the trial set to begin September 15th. On September 15, 1975, the defense was also struck a devastating blow when Judge Signorelli announced in a hearing, I deem it advisable to disqualify myself from this case, and I am going to ask the administrative judge to reassign the case. <clears throat> in his book entitled High Hopes, Sullivan openly admit that he had an active role behind Judge Signorelli's dis- dismissing himself, Sullivan added. I had not finished maneuvering. I was about to engage in a time-honored strategy that defense lawyers and prosecutors have owned into an art form. Some call it judge shopping. Sullivan helped pressure Judge Signorelli from the case in order to get the judge he wanted. His wish came true because the DeFeo case was rescheduled to begin on Monday, September 22, 1975 at 9.30 a.m. with Justice Thomas Stark, Sullivan's choice. Presiding over it for his book, Talking with Serial Killers, British criminologist Christopher Barry D. interviewed <laughs> Justice Stark, confronting Justice Stark on Sullivan handpicking him. Justice Stark, with a wave of a hand, dismissed this and said, In hindsight, this was quite wrong, but things were different back then. At the outset, in an attempt to nail Weber down on his defense during a private post-hearing conference, Justice Stark asked, At this time, Mr. Weber, are you prepared to continue our discussion as to the matter of the defendant's intentions of raising the defense of mental disease or defect? Weber replied, Your Honor, I am not able to answer you at this time. Still needing a definitive answer, Justice Stark continued pressing Weber on the issue, whereas Weber replied, Your Honor, at this point, the only thing I can ask the court to consider is my application for an adjournment of the trial. Weber went on to explain to Justice Stark his need for the 60-day adjournment. Because he had been retained as an attorney only since July, Weber needed more time to prepare his case. Although Judge Signorelli had granted Weber omnibus motion on August 1st, Weber had not received any paperwork from the district attorney until August 27th. During the post-hearing conference, Weber explained racist findings, multiple killers, weapons, and accomplices not being prosecuted, with such an overwhelming amount of evidence. Weber felt an adjournment was appropriate. Besides, Weber argued that the presence of an accomplice who they named at the post-hearing conference to show that this witness was not cooperating might assist Bush in, Butch in an emotional strain defense rather than a mental defect one. If an emotional strain defense was used and successful, then the charge against Bush would be reduced from second-degree murder to first-degree murder. Although William Weber... Yeah, I'm sorry, manslaughter. Although, we'll, we'll, <sighs> messed up my flow. Sorry. Although William Weber fought valiantly for his client, in the end, Justin Stark denied Weber's request and ordered the jury selection to commence on Monday, October 6, 1975. It was clear that Butch DeFeo was not being afforded the fullest protections of the American judicial system, so alternative methods, alternative. Alternative methods were needed, including persuading Butch to plead insanity by pretending, among other things, to hear voices in the Amityville house. It was the early beginnings of the Amityville haunted house hoax, however. 
Butch was no actor and his testimony actually backfired when he admitted not hearing any of the so-called voices the night of the murder. In an affidavit, Barry Springer stated that William Weber had told him that people approached him to write a book even before Butch's trial had started. Geraldine DeFeo further explained, because Butch felt insulted that his insanity could not be questioned, Weber had to convince him by alternate means. He promised Butch that he'd get out in two to three years and that he'd be rich from the book's success. In a notarized affidavit, Geraldine DeFeo admitted to being party to the initial planning of a book before backing out due to ethnical concerns. Okay, so... We found other notes. And here are some questions I have. No one heard the shots. A thirty-five caliber Marlin fired eight times. No neighbor. That close neighbor. That close neighbor. Somebody had to. Nobody heard it. Right. All people heard was the dog that was barking inside the house. They can hear the dog tied into the kitchen, but they couldn't hear the shots. Why couldn't they hear the shots? Um, you can hear that gun from three to four blocks away. So that's 27 houses if you go round about three or four times. Okay, so what are you saying? You don't, They were shot, but they yeah. weren't shot. It's just questions I have. Do you think they were shot somewhere else? No. Way too much blood in the beds. That's true. The blood splats. Troubles in the family, nonstop abuse from father, and so if the sister did kill everyone, why would she kill the kids? Because the father beat them too. That doesn't make sense. Why would she kill her mom too? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. And the way she was lying. Yeah, a lot of shit's not making sense. Ranting and Raven from prison said the devil made him do it. So even in prison, he kept up this act. The act. DEA officer did see the daughter come out with a rifle and toss it in the pond. Then how did she die by the same fucking rifle? Unless there was two rifles. No. Never found another rifle. And everything I can read, that Marlin killed every one of those kids. So, oh, I was reading. Go ahead, because I was just going to say that. Um, maybe he thought he saw his sister. Maybe. You know how, all right, use Dexter. You know, he thinks he sees his dad. Yeah. Hey, LSD is a hell of a drug. I don't know. Going back to the Chappelle show. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. DeFeo Sr. went to bring back a priest to exercise the home six months before the shooting started. He filled the entire house with a ton of Catholic statues and crosses the family was afraid months before the shootings. So all those statues were only six months old. They've been in the house since the little kid was born. So why the big jam up on Catholic markers? And this is DeFeo, the original, not the Lutz family. Right. So that happened before the shootings. Correct. And that's confirmed. Weird. 
The housekeeper stated Mrs. DeFeo said there would be a terrible tragedy in the family. That I'll take with a grain of salt, because who knows if they, you know, spoke the same language, if she really understood her, and it could be any tragedy. DeFeo Jr. said in an interview that once he shot his mom and dad, he could not put the gun down if he wanted to, as if something was moving him. Though I've read that line in more articles than that other article I read. Yeah, that's, I was going to say, that's what I've always heard. Like, the devil made him do it. Yeah. Ronald DeFeo Jr. states that he felt uneasy and heard voices from night one of moving in. Now, mysteries about the murder. How did no one wake up? That's what I don't understand. No drugs in their system. No silencer used. No one heard the shots. But you also everybody found the bed. This was 1970s. Yeah. They didn't have the technology they have now to detect all kinds of drugs. Right. So maybe something was in there. Or was it carbon monoxide? Or uh, how are you going to gas the whole house with carbon monoxide and you're fine? All right, mm, that's true. <laughs> but I'm just thinking, like maybe there was a drug. But even that's if the there, only way that no one is going to wake up. Even even if there was, Butch Crackhead DeFeo can get a hold of it. From Long Island? Maybe it was a mob hit. Alright, let's get into that. The father-in-law... I mean, the father looked like he was a mobster. Okay. The mother's parents, Brigante, are said to have Colombo and Genovese family connections. I found no proof to this. None. Mom's name was Brigante Sr. Car dealership is rumored to be a front for the mob. Could it be? Sure. Did I find anything? No. Is the mob going to walk into a house full no. of family with a rifle? No. And kill her? No. No. It's not that kind of thing. It's not their thing. So there's no proof of any of this. Butch DeFeo Jr. also claimed that it was Lou Fellini, a mob hitman did it, but was not in the state at the time. Detectives also find out that DeFeo Sr. had a $250,000 life insurance policy. Could that warranted the hit? Sure. But... Yeah, but you don't get it if they... You still get it. If you kill somebody. You're, you're not going to kill someone to try and get caught. <laughs> well, I know, but apparently... I mean, he threw the gun into a creek. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he was trying not to be caught. I don't know. So here's the picture of the gun used. It's a 35 caliber Marlin. Because the mob's going to sit there and use a cock action to no, lay out an entire family. No. So here's uh, Butch going into custody. I don't get the serial killer vibe from that. I never have. No, and I don't think... I don't think he did it. Well, I mean, he did it, but he didn't do it. You know what I mean? No, he fucking did it. He did it, but what I'm going to say... So you're, exactly. So after I'm all that, you're still, say, you're still on the... 
he was possessed or we're still on the possession thing yeah the devil made him do it i don't know where i'm at to be fr- i've changed my mind 17 times in researching for this fucking thing i really do think it was him being possessed by something or it was if he was on drugs Oh, he was definitely on drugs. Okay, so he was on drugs. And the LSD thought, will make you think the demon's right, in the house. hallucinate. But to go with your paranormal, it does not explain how no one heard these shots. Not the next door neighbor. That's driving not me anyone nuts. in the house. If we heard if a the gunshot, guy, if the guy down there by the railroad tracks shot that rifle, we'd fucking hear it and we'd jump. Right. But it is also wee hours in the morning. Yeah, but you hear fire ambulances and wake up in the middle of the night. You hear loud bangs and wake up in the middle of the night. Especially a quiet street like that. I don't know. If it's I not like they're that. in uh, Brooklyn where they're used to all that shit going on. Yeah. I mean, like, I'd be used to it. You're not going to be used to it. No, I'm country. <laughs> so that's the one thing. And this picture right here. After hearing that she was part of this. That is not. She was not part of it. That I. She's tucked in the bed. Right. That's how I sleep. If I'm sleeping on my stomach, my arms are under the pillow. I'm all comfy. I know. Like, no. She did not do it. Uh, He must have been hallucinating thinking she was there with him. But I still don't understand how no one heard a gunshot. And. Not one person (laughs) heard a gunshot. And I know it was the the 70s and they don't look. (laughs) like they did here but we would have as popular as this case is we know everything about the oj trial we know where all the blood splats were we know where everything was where were the blood if she was shot outside of bed like they say there there would be drops of blood on the floor i couldn't find any pictures of drops of blood on the floor no and there would have been pictures of it because at a crime scene you have to take pictures of everything and this case is big enough that it would all be all over the internet we still couldn't find the 911 calls. Right. We so, found the transcript, but yeah, not the actual 911 call. We found the transcript. Well, this has been part one. The true story behind the Amityville Horror. We'll get into the horror in the next part. And uh, tell us what you guys think. I'm interested to see. Start some wars. Our stupid little stickers are falling off here. There we go. Look at that. I gotta figure out something better. I just—I was tired of looking at the blank spot. But you got anything on the first part of this other than what we I'm went over? I'm just so confused. And that's the thing. Okay, to to break this down for you guys, I've watched four documentaries. I've read ten different articles. I've tried to find the everything i could about this and we'll get into even more details on the next one i read a couple articles and nothing no i just the whole thing is there was no one heard the gunshots how is that possible yep no one heard them and that's the biggest one and that's because you think all right you shoot the parents first then the um the kids are going to run out of the bedroom unless they're so scared but they would be out of bed. They wouldn't be laying. I could see the kids being scared, getting under the covers. But where the fuck are the neighbors? Because that shot is going to fucking ring out in that big ass house. And it wasn't just one shot. No, there was nine. Yeah, I was trying to count. 
There was nine. Eight times. Gun eight. was shot eight, eight. times. Because the dad was shot twice. Twice. Right. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. Oh, it's so frustrating. And we'll never know. That's Wish the I could go part. back in time. <laughs> but I mean, like, you can usually find... They have sketches from the 50s of... Well, they were shot here and moved here because of the blood trail. Where's that info? Right. There's Why nothing. can't we find that? It's all... And every podcast I've listened to... Every documentary I've watched, nothing is explained that they were not shot in the bed, even though I'm told they might not have been shot in bed. Might not have doesn't prove anything. Like, if the dad got up, there'd be blood on the floor because he had a fucking bullet in him. So, how do you think? Like, what do you think? I don't know. That's what I keep saying. You. I go back and forth. You think the devil made him do it? And- no. I, I, but the, as soon as the LSD talks to me and tells him to kill his fucking family, I'm like, all right, you know, that shit happens, but nobody heard the gunshots and nobody moved. So that right there, we'll go deeper next week. We're going to leave it on a cliffhanger. That's all I got for you today at Halloween Haunts, 365.com, the podcast where every day is haunt season. Goodbye. Bye.